Uh, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you grabbed one of those guest Bibles, we're on page 922. We're going to continue our series on what it means to be a Christian influencer in the world. And I'm going to read here about just a four or five verses here from uh, this letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. And I'm going to pick up here in chapter 9 at verse 19. Now, uh, you know I like to give context for the passages we find ourselves in, so I will read the text, and then we'll talk a little bit about where it fits in the, the letter as a whole here, okay? So uh, chapter 9, 1 Corinthians, verse 19, down to verse 23. Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Now, the believers in Corinth that Paul is writing to belong to a church that Paul himself had planted. And you can find that account back in Acts chapter 18. It took place somewhere between three and five years from the time of this writing. Um, scholars have placed the writing of 1 Corinthians during Paul's third missionary journey, uh, perhaps while he was staying there in Ephesus for a number of years. And yet during the time between when Paul founded the church and when he has written this letter, there were some within the church in Corinth who had gone out of their way to continually question Paul's apostolic authority. In fact, they claimed for themselves even greater credentials. They, they claimed that they were the ones that should be the ones that everyone listens to, that people should, should submit to their authority and, and obey the things that they have to say. And so they, they were making sure everyone knew who really was in charge there in the church. And so to them, Christian leadership was about being above people. It was about exercising power. And yet, anywhere that Paul talks about the topic, he makes it quite clear after the manner of the Lord himself that Christian authority and leadership is not about tyranny, but responsibility. And the right credentials of a Christian leader are not found in the, you know, the, the strong exercising of power, but rather in the denial and the offering of the self for the benefit of others. Indeed, Paul had seen the Lord himself with his own eyes. I mean, that's the, the first and, and perhaps most important um, character and quality of an apostle, to, be, to see the resurrected Jesus, to hear his voice, to be commissioned and, and sent out with a specific task in representing him. The very existence of the church in Corinth as a whole, back in verse 2, of the very first chapter, is that they are a seal of his apostleship. So if you want to see the fruit of this calling of Jesus upon his life, they had to look no further than into the mirror. I am the proof of Paul's apostleship. I am the, the seal of the call of God upon his life. 
He had brought the gospel to them. They'd never heard it before, but he's the one that brought it to them at his own expense, and he had done it so at great personal risk, and yet at no point had Paul ever demanded anything from them in return. Isn't that interesting? He puts himself on the line. He, he takes all the costs upon himself. He does it all for the sake of them, and he never asks for anything in return. And that's a major emphasis of really chapter 9 as a whole. You know, when we got to verse 19, he's talking about this, this topic of freedom, which we will get to momentarily, but it's within the larger discussion about what it means that, that he is an apostle but never laid claim to what was rightfully his. He lays out the strong case all the way back from the first verse of why he was entitled, if he so chose, to stay in their homes, to, to eat meals at their table, to receive whatever form of compensation that was appropriate. He says in verse 7, what soldier has to pay his own expenses? What farmer plants a vineyard and doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? What shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? Even the ox, he quotes from back in Deuteronomy 25, has the right to eat as it treads out the grain. You see where he's going with this, this line of reasoning. He even appeals to the temple in verses 13 and 14. Those who work in the temple, the ones who are offering the sacrifices on behalf of the people, who are ministering in the presence of God, representing the nation, even those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings. That was how they ate. It was by the offerings of the people. In the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. And yet... In light of all that truth, from the Old Testament to the New, from the beginning of the chapter to the end, Paul never cashes in on his rights. Instead, he says in verses 17 and 18, If I were doing this on my own initiative, I would deserve payment. But I have no choice, for God has given me the sacred trust. What then is my pay? It is the opportunity to preach the good news without charging anyone. That's why I never demand my rights, when I preach the good news, and in fact, back in verse 15, he says, I would rather die than lose my right to boast about preaching without charge. And so this is that, that underlying principle, that, that ethos of Paul working itself out. That, that idea of Christian leadership is not, you know, putting yourself over people, exercising power, putting people in their place, showing them who's boss. No, for Paul, after the manner of the Lord, Christian leadership is giving oneself away. And that's, that's demonstrated in his decision to preach without charge, to not expect anything in return, even though he is entitled to those things. But our passage, as I mentioned a moment ago, in, beginning in verse 19, begins with a reference to his freedom. And that always begs the question, what does it mean that Christians are free? Well, we're free from things, but we're also free to things. And those are some of the things that I think it's, it's worth taking a moment to talk about. What are we free from in Christ? Well, we're free from what? The guilt, the wages, the consequences of sin and death. Man, isn't it nice to be free from that? That you can come to Jesus and you can confess your sins to him. You can trust in his saving work on your behalf and a transaction occurs. He takes your sin away, and he gives you his righteousness. 
And there's a freedom that comes from having the record wiped clean. From, from having the, that pollution of sin and self-centeredness that has, that has defined you from the moment you were brought into this world to have it all wiped clean. Thanks be to God for the freedom we have from that in Christ. It also means freedom from enslavement to the world and to the flesh and to the devil. There's power in Jesus. It's not merely, an, as we've talked in recent weeks, some impersonal transaction where something was done for you and you received benefits from it. No, his life becomes your life. And he breaks the power of sin. And that the power of the world and its influence over you, the power of the devil, who wants nothing more than to see your soul destroyed. Jesus cleanses you. Jesus empowers you. And you are free from guilt, but free from power, the power of sin. We're also free, and I thank God for this as well, free from having to work to earn God's favor, free from the striving to measure up, free from having to do all the things to be considered righteous before God. No, Christ has done those things. Your righteousness is in him. He is your righteousness. But what is the Christian free to? We know what we're free from. What are we free to? Well, let me tell you one thing it's not. It's not free to sin. And that perhaps is one of the most common practical implications of bad theology in the church today. That because my life is covered with the blood of Jesus, that it doesn't matter what I do. And the, the scriptures would say quite the opposite. It's because you're covered with God's grace. Because the blood of Jesus has covered and cleansed you, that you are a new creature, and therefore you live a new different sort of way. Paul says it himself, and perhaps the most well-known passage on freedom in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 5, he says in verse 13, don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. In chapter 6 of Romans, Paul also confronts this idea that Christians might use their their freedom in God's grace as a license to sin. He says throughout the chapter, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not! Exclamation point. May it not be so. How dare we ever even think that for a second? When we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Sin is no longer your master. You live under the freedom of God's grace. Therefore, you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. You see it? You're free from your slavery to sin that you might be free to live a righteous life as a slave to righteous living. Not a slave to earning righteousness. Never get that confused. And we, we mess that up in, in holiness traditions all the time, that somehow I've received God's grace, he's transformed me, and now I have to do, do, do in order to be holy. And that's never the equation. It's always God is the one who's doing the work of my life. I'm responding to that by living out the implications of what he's done in his power, for his glory, never focused on myself, always focused on him. I'm not a slave to earning righteousness. No, I'm a slave to live according to, to the life of Christ. I willingly submit myself to a life that I was created for and saved for, a life that 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 God has designed for me. It's, it's according to his purposes. It's the works that he has lined up for me to do. 
I'm living it out, living out my salvation. Faith working itself out in love. In Christ, we have freedom from sin and freedom to be holy. It's beautiful doctrine of freedom found throughout the New Testament. And Paul is, is building on all this, this idea of being free when he refers to it here. Now I know it's, it's, it's nuanced in this passage. It's specific and we're going to get to the specificity. But it's built on this foundation of what Christian freedom is. He is completely free in verse 19. I am completely free and yet I am a slave to all. Now, if that doesn't sound like a, a paradox, I don't know what is. How are, you a, a, how are you, how is no man your master, and yet you are a slave to all men? That makes no sense. Paul's speaking in riddles once again. Well, when he says I'm a slave to all, I think what he's saying is, in my freedom, I'm, I'm no longer living for myself. I'm no longer captive to my sinfulness. That self-centeredness that's at the core of my heart due to the, the nature of sin I inherited from the first Adam. Thanks be to God we have a true and better Adam. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. I love, love, love the theology of that song. And it's fun to sing too. But man, at the heart of it, it's showing that Christ is the story. The whole story of the scriptures, it all points to him. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible in song form. I love it. Everything whispers his name. He's the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Abraham. He's the true and better Isaac and Jacob. He's the true and better Moses. He's the true and better prophets. He's, he is the fulfillment of everything. All of it points to him and finds its meaning in him. But Paul knows, and you and I know, that we have inherited a sinful nature from the first Adam that puts me on the throne of my heart. I am at the center. It's all about me. And Paul says, I have found freedom from that. I have found freedom from that in Christ. I am free from serving my own sinful desires and appetites. And I am free, therefore, to willingly be a slave to you. And I would contend that such a, a commitment only takes place once you have first become a slave to Christ. When we are prisoners to sin with a heart that's only ever curved in on itself, it's impossible to be the selfless, Christ-like person God has called and created you to be. It is not within your power to be like Christ and to give yourself away for others. But once we're set free in Christ, we, we, there's this invitation. It's interesting. You know, our, our tradition talks about two works of grace. The first, where you're saved from, from the guilt and the power of sin. You come to Jesus, you say yes to him, and Jesus gives you his grace. Jesus gives you forgiveness. Jesus gives you mercy. You have all the things from him that he's offering you. But there's a, there has to come a point in your life where you reach a second crisis moment in your Christian experience, where you say, yes, I've received all of Jesus, but has Jesus received all of me? You know, there's a lot of Christians who are, who are happy to accept grace. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, for doing the thing for me. Thank you. Thank you for, for getting me out of hell. <laughs> Thank you for, for blessing me. 
And yet, we want to receive from him all of the stuff, but we want to maintain control. We want to be in charge. We want to remain on that throne of our heart. Call the shots. And God needs to do something else in our heart where we are enabled to not just take all he is to offer, but give all we have to offer. It's a work of grace where he enables us to say yes entirely. Do all that you want to do in me. Have all of me. Take all that I am, all that I want, all that I dream about, everything I am. And when, he do, and when that happens, and when he finally is seated on the throne of your heart, and he's given free access to reshape and to mold you and after, the, after his own image, then suddenly a whole new world of self-giving love becomes available to you. You find that there's this deep reservoir of, of, of agape welling up from, in, from within you, and you are enabled to love people as God loves people, completely, perfectly, we call it. We call it perfect love in the, the Methodist tradition, the Wesleyan tradition, not United Methodist. Don't, I never, I'm never talking about United Methodist when I just say Methodist. In the, the greater Wesleyan, Arminian, Methodist tradition, we call it perfect love. God can do a work in my heart where I can love people with all of my heart. I can love God with all of my heart. I can love others as, they, as, as Christ loved them. I can love them as I love myself. Paul called himself, in other, in other um, letters that he wrote, the prisoner of the Lord. And, and at first we read that and we're like, oh, okay, well, Paul's writing as a literal prisoner. <laughs> and he was. He was an actual prisoner because of the consequences of his calling. God called him to be an apostle. It resulted in imprisonment. Therefore, it is right to call himself a prisoner of the Lord. But he means more than that, doesn't he? He doesn't just mean, I'm in prison because of Jesus. He's saying, Jesus is my master. I am imprisoned to him. I am enslaved to him. I have freely given all of myself to him. Every dimension of my life is placed under his control. Every bit of my person is his. It's what Carl was just preaching about two weeks ago. Who's the Lord of your life? Not who is your savior. He wants to be savior and Lord. Is he Lord over all of your life? It's what Savannah shared last Sunday in her testimony from camp. It's what, what the Lord is doing in her, in her own young life and heart. Moving her to this place where she, can, she wants to so respond to what God is saying to her that she can say in the words that she chose for her own testimony that he is my true and only king. Man, what a testimony from a 14-year-old. And I'm not saying that because she's my daughter. I'm saying it because she's a 14-year-old who's wrestling with the lordship of God over her life like I know others in the youth group are. It's beautiful to watch. Some of us live our whole Christian lives and never get to the place where we can truly say, Jesus, you are my true and only king. Because for whatever reason, we've either never heard the call of the gospel to give all of ourselves back to him, or we've heard it and we've said no. I'd rather, I'll give you most of me, but not all of me. You can have my tithes, you can have my, my, most of my behaviors. You can have my Sundays for sure. Well, until the NFL comes on at 1 o'clock. But no, you're not, getting, you're not getting this. This little thing 
You're not getting that. You're not getting my children. You're not getting my future. Whatever it is, we, we hold something back. And when you see young people wanting to give it all up to him, man, it, it energizes me. Paul's singular focus on Christ resulted in a desire to lay his life down like Christ. With what goal in mind? What, what, is his, what, is his, what is the end game here, Paul? Well, he says simply that I might bring some to Christ. He says to win them. That, that verb that, that's in the Greek is, is in there five times in just a few verses. That I might win them. That I might win them over. That I might gain them. You see what he's talking about. He's not just talking about, you know, winning an argument. He's talking about winning people. I want to win them. Not just convincing them that, you know, that I'm right and you're wrong. So often, the sum total of our Christian witness, our attempt to win people, is, is only that. I'm going to beat you in this debate. I'm going to show you how you're wrong and where you're wrong and why you're wrong and why I'm right. And I'm going to justify myself in the process. That to us is winning people. Well, that's not winning people to Paul. Winning people to Paul is not convincing others that you're right and they're wrong, but winning them and with the result of what he says in verse 22 of saving them. I win them over that they might be saved. And so it seems as we as we look at the life of Paul and we listen to his teaching and his preaching and what he's writing here, it appears that in his life and in the life of a lot of other godly people, in fact, I would say in the life of every godly person, there is this direct correlation between our love and devotion and yieldedness to Jesus and our desire and effort to bring others to him. A direct correlation. The more you love him, the more you're devoted to him, the more you're yielded to his, to his lordship over your life, well then, the more you desire and the more you will work to bring others to him. And that's a hard truth for this pastor to face. <laughs> As I look at the fruit of my own life and I look at, 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 the, at the efforts and the desire that I have to bring the lost to Jesus, and I look at that and I say, wow, if, is that a commentary on my own love and devotion and yieldedness to him? Man, that's a, hard, that's a hard truth to grapple with. How does your life measure up to that? What, what do, do, do your desire and efforts to win the lost say about your own love and devotion and yieldedness to the Lord? Do you seek to just win over, to, to win arguments? Or are you seeking to win over people? You know, we all want to be proven right. <laughs> there's, this, there's this insidious, uh, sinful aspect to, to human nature where we, we want to always be justified and shown to be right in the sight of other people. Oh, is there anything worse than when someone is maligning you or slandering you, lying about you, publicly, what's your first impulse when that happens? Well, I need to go on and make, set the record straight. 
I need to go and, and, sh- and justify myself in the, in the eyes of other people. And I want to ask you, did Jesus do that once in his life? As we consider the testimony of the scriptures, are you your defender or is God your defender? Listen, that might be the hardest thing you ever grapple with as a Christian. Letting God be your defender and not becoming defensive. Our, our inclination is to rush to Facebook or rush to the church meeting or to rush to the family get-together and, and do whatever it takes to set the record straight. To, to show them to be wrong and me to be in the right. To justify myself. To prove that I'm, I'm not what you're saying that I am. To put people in their place. I could crush you with the truth. But that has nothing to do with their eternal destiny. That has everything to do with you feeling better about yourself in the sight of other people. Jesus never crushed a person with truth. He spoke truth in love. It was never about himself. It was only ever about the other. And Paul too, he was not laser focused on winning arguments. He was laser focused on winning souls. Not that he would benefit, but that they would benefit for eternity. And so I want to ask you, how others-oriented are your own motives in your efforts to talk about and share Jesus with the world? This past Wednesday night in the youth group, the lesson was all about our motives for sharing the gospel. And, and it was a great lesson. It, it, it pulled out several different uh, possible motives for sharing the gospel from the scriptures or four or five, six different places in the scriptures where, where uh, they talk about different reasons for sharing the good news and they're all biblical and all wonderful and, I, and every one of them has a place in the life of the Christian. But while there's many solid biblical reasons to do it, Paul's reason is simple. Look at verse 16 again if you have your Bibles open. He says simply, I am compelled by God to do it. You know, there are a lot of reasons to do good things, and all those reasons, in the end, can be very self-serving, can't they? But Paul says, I do whatever I, I do because he is in me, propelling me forward. He is the Lord. He's the captain of the ship of my life. And I sail to the, the mark that he sets. I go where he tells me to go. I go where he goes. Jesus' wish was Paul's demand. But I think even more deeply than that, Jesus' heart was becoming Paul's heart. He desired what the Lord desires. He cherishes the things the Lord cherishes. And he too, just like the Lord himself, would give himself away for the sake of the world. Paul had discovered in every bit of life, even in his calling to be an apostle, true Christian freedom, freedom to be like Christ, 
and giving himself away in love. Now for his life up to the point when he met Jesus, Paul had been a slave, hadn't he? And I don't just mean in the same sense that all people in all places are, are enslaved. He specifically was a slave to the law. Now here's the thing about you know, law keeping. It's real easy to get lost in the details. So I have a little uh, anecdote to illustrate this. The last night of uh, youth camp a few weeks ago, the Thursday night, traditionally it's, it's, a, it's just different than the other nights. They have special activities lined up for the, sen- the graduating seniors. Um, they gave a, a special nighttime uh, pool opportunity for the, for the boys and then the girls. They got to go swim in the dark. And there was a an ex- little bit of a, an extended curfew. And, and it was just like, you could just feel just the buzz in the camp. The, the teens were just something different. It was the last night, all these special privileges. The, the canteen was open for, for treats, and Pastor Jeff and I were in there, and we were having a great old time, you know, selling stuff and, and, and having, having fun horsing around. I'll tell you another story sometime about um, the, the pickle-flavored slushies Jeff was trying to serve people. But anyway, we were having a great time, um, and they called the whole camp into the chapel to talk about the rules, Okay, so you're given all these privileges, all these special activities, but here's the rules. And, and the, the, the final, most important rule was everyone, except the graduating seniors, everyone will be in their cabins at 1045 sharp, and there are no exceptions. And all the kids are talking, and they're, they're trying to keep everyone to be quiet and listen, and I raised my hand, and, and Kevin up front got, Pastor Sean, and my question was, well, what if there's a fire in the cabin? <laughs> I couldn't help it. The, the, I was caught up in the moment, and the, just the inner troll in me just couldn't resist. And it was like a dam broke, and suddenly all the other trolls in the room's hands shot up. And now everyone wanted to pick apart the rule and find all the exceptions and all the, you know, the, 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 the ways around to circumvent the rules and, and nuance the rules. And it just like, it's just like everything exploded. And I, then I felt kind of guilty because I kind of, I, well, I just kind of like threw the grenade in there and then just watched all the carnage happen. But you, you get the point, don't you? I mean, it doesn't take very much for any of us, if, we're, if we have the eyes to see, it doesn't take very much to see that keeping the law is a way of life, but keeping the law is not a way to life. And Paul had discovered the death of trying to keep 613 written precepts in the Pentateuch. Imagine that. Every day, am I obeying all 613 of these rules exactly? And not just the 613 rules, but also that, that oral amplification of their application, which Jesus called the tradition of the elders, which, which took a, a, a little, you know, a rule book this big and made it like this big. And he was bound to that with all of his heart and soul. And yet in Christ, he found freedom from the necessity of complying with all the regulations and all the ceremonies and all the traditions as a matter of divine obligation. He was free from it. And yet in his freedom, we find beautifully in this passage here that he not only found freedom to discard keeping the law, but he also found freedom to adopt it as need dictated. 
That's really fascinating to me. In other words, Paul would willingly go through the rituals and the ceremonies and keep the traditions if it meant reaching someone else who was compelled to do them. Look at verse 20. He says, when I was with the Jews, this is after Christ. He's not talking about in his life before Christ. He's talking about after coming to Christ, he would go into the synagogues, he would preach everywhere he went. That was his formula. He'd go to the synagogue first, and he would proclaim the good news to, to the people of God there, and then once they rejected him, he would go and preach to everybody else. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ, not to earn God's favor, not to find life in my law-keeping. No, I was with them and lived like them to bring them to him. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Why? Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who were under the law. We see this working out in in the cases of him circumcising Timothy. Or when he discharges a Nazarite vow in Jerusalem, we see him living this out. To to win the Jews, to win those under the law, I, I, I did what it took to reach them. I entered into that world once again, even though I was free from it. I willingly stepped back into that, subjected myself to it, that I might win them. But on the flip side of that, if discarding those things meant reaching those who do not feel compelled to do them, those to whom it would be a stumbling block to keep them from coming to Christ, well, he could just just as easily discard them. As he says in verse 21, when I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. And we see this working out when he resists the pressure of the Judaizers to circumcise Titus. Again, examples in the scriptures of someone working these principles out. I do whatever it takes to reach as many people as possible for Christ. At whatever cost to myself, whatever expense I have to incur for me, I will do for you. And his example is a challenge to us all. You see, to Paul, these things that were morally and religiously indifferent were things that he could observe or ignore as occasion demanded. So whether it was in matters of religious sensitivity or racial identity or in the matter of individual conscience, Paul was free and open to obey however the Holy Spirit would have him enter into this in gospel ministry. The only law that Paul was bound to, which he states in the scriptures, the second half of verse 21, the only law he was bound to is this, I do not ignore the law of God, I obey the law of Christ. And what is he talking about? The law of Christ, to love God and others. I am bound to that law alone. And sometimes to fulfill that law, I have to do and be something for someone else at great cost to myself. If I have to live like a Jew again, I will. Not to earn God's love, but because of God's love and out of God's love. If I have to enter into the lives of the pagans and invest myself there that I might win them, well, that's what I'll do. Not to earn God's love, in response to God's love and out of God's love. I'll do whatever it takes. And I just wonder, what lengths are we willing to go 
to fulfill the law of Christ over our lives. You and I, as Christians, are, are tasked with the challenge of not only identifying with, but incarnating into the lives of people in the world. That never, ever, ever means becoming like the world. No, you were saved from that. We've covered that already. You've been saved from that. You've been freed from that. You will never impact the world if you enter the world and act like the world. Now, we covered that last week. You are distinct from, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. You're for the world, but not from the world. You are to be salt and light, distinct and holy. And as we'll see next week, your holiness is to be lived out in sight of the world. The world is to see that, lived out, Christ in you. But you have to sow Invest into people of the world and, and be enfleshed, the life of God, enfleshed in the lives of the people in the world through you that, well, that your light would shine, that your salt would be rubbed in, that, that God would use you and that you would use whatever means at your disposal within the boundary lines of his word to reach and save the lost. Paul says, I try to find common ground with everyone, or more tra- the more traditional uh, translation, which you may be used to, I have become all things to all people. All people. All people. <laughs> all things. All people. See, Paul's was not some partial effort to reach some, but a whole effort to reach all. He preached to Jews. He preached to Gentiles. He preached to residents. He preached to foreigners. He preached to urbanites. He preached to good old-fashioned country folk. People of every race, every color, every background, every creed, from the synagogue to the marketplace to the university, right into people's homes, Paul would not stop until everybody heard. In Romans 1, he confessed to the church there that he'd been delayed in coming to see them. Even though he'd wanted to be there, he was delayed because he was compelled to invest the gospel in the areas God had called him to. But by the end of the, cha- end of the book, in chapter 15, he says, now it's time for me to come to you because, well, there's no place left for me to preach. Isn't that fascinating? That Paul would not leave where God had charged him to go until everyone heard. Everyone. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 19 where it says, He preached and taught until the people of the entire province of Asia had heard the word of the Lord. An entire Roman province was evangelized because of one man's faithful, consistent, spirit-filled witness and investment into every life he encountered. Because of that, a whole region heard the gospel. And he would not leave until the work was done. Is that not our duty? Are we not called to the exact same thing? Are we not also so compelled in our yieldedness to Jesus? It is true that you and I are not apostles after the same manner that Paul was an apostle. To be an apostle in that sense, fit a very, very uh, distinct definition that only the handful of people in the time of of the resurrected, you know, Jesus' appearances qualify for. 
Okay, you and I and other people who call themselves apostles are not apostles like that. However, you are a Christian. (laughs) And the principle that underlies and compels Paul is the same that underlies and compels us to be like Christ in denying ourselves for the sake of another. Listen, you and I are not apostles but apostolic authority and commission has been entrusted to the church. You have apostolic authority and commission by virtue of being a Christian to go and proclaim. You will be my witnesses at Rabbit's Corner. I guess it's over here. (laughs) And on Hall's Creek. And in Chappanoke. Got the mayor of Chappanoke sitting right here. And in Windfall. And in Weeksville. And in Hertford. And Elizabeth City. And Camden. And Morgan's Corner. And Edenton. And everywhere in between and beyond. You will be my witnesses, Jesus says, to the ends of the earth. Sowing seeds. Cultivating relationships. Going the extra mile meeting need, giving sacrificially, speaking truth and love, investing in the lives of people. Some people you know, some you don't know. Some people you like and enjoy and love to be around, and others, well, not so much that. Day after day, month after month, year after year, never stopping until all the world knows the good news of Jesus Christ. Church, that is your commission. That is what you have been empowered to be and to do. Paul shared all possible truth with all possible people in all possible ways. The whole gospel for the whole region with his whole strength. And that's the type of influencer that you are called to be. Not for your own sake, but for the sake of the world. The kind that gives everything we have to go out of these walls to wherever the Lord places us, using every method possible, becoming as creative and unconventional, and at times even as radical as we can be within the boundary lines of his word, that someone might hear the good news, that someone might come to know Jesus face to face, that someone's life life might be transformed forever. In every venue we can, in every way we can, witnessing as much as we can, that we might win and save as many as we can, bound by nothing but the law of Christ, the master we love, the one we're yielded to and becoming more and more like as the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts, sits upon the throne and begins having his way. Church, you are salt and light. Distinct from the world, yet at work in the world, freely giving yourself away to the world. Be the influencer he's called you to be. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for the the example of, of Paul, we don't lift him up as some superhuman. We don't lift him up as some special Christian that is in a different uh, category than any of us could ever hope to. Yes, Paul was unique in what you called him to do. Oh, but he's, he's not unique in what you called him to be. That's exactly what you're calling all of us to be. People who have received your grace We've received the gifts of your mercy and your love. We've said yes 
to the benefits of Christ's atonement. Oh, but you've also called us to give all of ourselves back to you. And in that regard, Paul is the typical, the prototypical Christian. That's what we are all supposed to be. And I pray, Lord, if there's someone here this morning who said yes to your benefits but have never given all of themselves back to you, I pray that today would be a day of consecration. That they would be willing to be bold in their response to the truth of your word and say, Jesus, I've given you some of me. I want to give you all of me. And they can come at any point in this service and kneel in your presence and in the presence of your people and, and seal that act of consecration and receive a work of grace that would free them completely from themselves, from all self-interest, from all self-concern, from the, the very gravity of sin that pulls them towards themselves at all times. Lord, you can break us free from that. Do that in someone's heart today, I pray, that we would begin to be people who stop seeking to win arguments and that we would be a people who are all about winning souls at whatever cost to ourselves, after the very pattern you have laid before us. Lord, the cross is our guide. It's how we're unique. It's how we're different. It's how we're saved, and it's how we will win that others might win others that they might be saved. Lord, do what you need to do in your people, that we would be the influencers you've called us to be. Salt and light, all things to all people, finding common ground with everyone. For your sake and for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.